Well, this morning I want uh, to begin by getting you to think about all the different kinds of relationships that you have in your life. Uh, we all have a variety of relationships in our lives, don't we? I mean, uh, we have acquaintances, uh, we have colleagues, we have uh, friendships, we have family. Uh, many of us are, are married, we have a spouse. And, and in each of those relationships, there is sort of this unspoken set of rules about how we interact with one another. Right? And those rules differ depending upon the kind of a relationship that we're in, don't they? So, so for instance, uh, you know, if you think about the kind of a relationship that uh, I have with my brother. Uh, my brother, I talk to him and I joke with him and I laugh with him in a very different way than I talk to my mother-in-law. Right? <laughs> it's just a different kind of a relationship that we have. And in fact, the... the, the uh, the things that are really personal to me, the, the, the hurts and the things that I really care about deeply, I share those types of things with my wife, with a close friend, but not with an acquaintance. We all know that when an acquaintance asks you, how's it going? The answer is, I'm fine, thank you. Right? And, and the other day, I went to visit a friend of mine. I knocked on the door. He opened the door, big smile on his face. He put his arms out. He said, hey, John, nice to see you. Gave me a big hug. It's a very different greeting than the one I get from the police officer when he pulls me over for speeding, right? Because it's different kinds of relationships, so we have a different understanding of how we interact with one another. The problem comes in our life when we don't understand those different rules about how we're supposed to interact. If you've ever joked with a police officer when you should have been serious, you know, that's not a good thing to do, right? If you ever joked with your wife like you would with your buddy when you should have been serious, that's also not always a good thing to do, right? There's just different set of rules for how we interact depending on the relationship we're in. And in fact, the more important the relationship is, the more important it is that we understand what those rules are and how it is that we're supposed to interact. And probably the most important relationship, and unfortunately one that we often misunderstand, is our relationship with God. People have all kinds of understandings, uh, misunderstandings of what their relationship with God should be like. Some, some people think that they should be in a business relationship with God. So it's a business deal. Uh, I do this for you, God. And in return, I expect you to do this for me. It's kind of like a legal contract. Others think that their relationship should, with God should be like a servant-master relationship. They're the master and God is the servant. And when there's a problem in their life, they call the servant to come in to sweep it up, clean up. And when he's done, he should quietly go back into the shadows. That's the view that other people have about the relationship with God. Still others think that their relationship with God should be like a, a close friendship. It should be intimate and personal between two equals who are both deeply invested in it, but who could both walk away if they ever feel that they want to. And still others just aren't sure. I mean, it's kind of like having a relationship with the queen. You know, you kind of know how you might hang out with the queen, but you're not quite sure, right? So, how should we relate to God? Well, it turns out that God has some very strong ideas about how it is that we should be in a relationship with him. And this passage that we're going to look at today, he is going to enter into a relationship with Abram. And that is going to become a pattern and a picture for the kind of a relationship that he wants to enter into with us. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. And if you didn't uh, bring your Bible, there should be one right near you in one of the chairs. And you can find this on page 11 of that Bible. 
You know, by this time, Abraham, uh, in Abraham's story, God has met with him a number of times. And Abraham has sought to follow and obey God's leading. And now in, in this story, in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham and he is going to go much deeper in his relationship with him. He's going to formalize his relationship with him. So let's start by uh, looking at the first two verses of Genesis chapter 17. This is the word of God. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So here we see the kind of relationship that God wants to have with Abram. He wants to be in a covenant relationship with him. Now, maybe you know what that is. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you're not so sure. But it is the way that God enters into a relationship with anyone, whether it's Abram or the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham or you and I. In fact, it is the only kind of relationship that God will enter into. So if we want to be in a covenant relationship with God, it would be wise for us to know and understand what it's all about. Because if we don't, down the road, we're going to have some problems, aren't we? So, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant happens to be the most powerful and frankly, the most beautiful kind of relationship that any person could possibly enter. And that is because it is this beautiful mix of two key elements, love and law. So, a covenant relationship, first of all, is all about love. It is deeply personal. It is uh, very affectionate. It is an intimate relationship that somebody enters into. Much more so than you would ever get from a legal relationship with somebody. But there's also a legal side to it. There is a legal binding of two parties that are deeply and ongoingly committed to one another. And that strong legal commitment is what makes this love so beautiful and so deep. Because you can give yourself fully in a covenant relationship because you never have to fear that that love will somehow be yanked away from you. This is what makes a covenant both beautiful and powerful. Love and law. It is, in fact, the exact opposite of most relationships that people enter into. Not most, but many. Which are covenant vendor relationships. In other words, both parties enter into a relationship on the understanding that as long as I get from this relationship what I need and you get what you need, we're good. But if neither of us or either of us get, doesn't get what we want, then we can just back away from it. That's not a covenant. A covenant is permanent. It's solemn. It is the fully self-giving of two parties to one another. Pastor Tim Keller uh, puts it this way. A covenant is more intimate and more loving than a mere contract. And it's more binding and more accountable than a mere relationship. It's like the best of both worlds. And this is the kind of relationship that God wants with Abraham. And frankly, it's the kind of relationship that he wants with you and I. So, what then does this look like in practical terms? Well, when God first comes to Abraham here in verse 1, he says to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may enter into a covenant with you. God finds Abram. He says, I want, I want to enter into this covenant relationship with you. But there's two things that Abram needs to know. First of all, God comes and he introduces himself as El Shaddai. 
God Almighty, the God who is above all things and over all things, the God who needs nothing, the God who created the billions of stars in the universe and the tiniest particle and who gives Abram every breath. And God says to Abraham, this covenant relationship between you and me, it will never be between equals. I am God Almighty. So I'm going to give the lead in this relationship. If you think that you're going to enter into a relationship with God and you and him are going to be equal, you are going to be deeply, deeply disappointed. But you also have to understand how profound that is. I mean, the God of all creation who created everything and made it all and controls it all says, I want to be in a deeply intimate, loving relationship with you and I will bind myself to you legally. Think about that for a moment. Of all the religions in all of history, there has never been any other God who has offered that to his people. The other gods, they they talk to the people, they argue with them, they make demands on them, they want them to be appeased, but they would never dream of, of binding themselves legally in a love relationship with their people. But that's what El Shaddai, Yahweh, our God, the living and true God, wants to do with Abram and what he wants to do with us. It's a remarkable thing. It's the first thing that he wants them to understand. But secondly, notice that this is going to be a real relationship. So that means Abram also has a part to play. God comes to him and says, I want you to walk before me and to be blameless. Now, when God says, I want you to walk before me, what he's really saying is, I I want you to orient your whole life towards your relationship with me. Every step that you take should be in light of our relationship. And then he adds, and be blameless. Now, the Hebrew word there for blameless means to be whole or complete. And sometimes when we read that in English, we misunderstand. We think that when God calls us to be blameless, what he's asking for us is to be without sin, to be perfect if we want to be in a covenant relationship with him. Well, you and I know we can't do that. It's impossible. But that's not what he's talking about. When he says blameless, he means whole or complete. He means be totally and completely committed to this relationship. You see, you're not entering into an acquaintanceship with God. You're not entering into a friendship with him. You're not even entering into a legal relationship with him. You are entering into a covenant with none other than God himself. And so he says, if you're doing that, you have to be all in, holy and completely blameless in your commitment to to this relationship. That's what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. So God comes to Abram and he asks him to, invites him to enter this kind of relationship. And then he begins to lay out for Abram the kind of things that God will do for him in this relationship. And so as we read these next verses, I want you to listen for how many times God says, I will do this or that. Let's read verses three through eight. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. 
all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. You hear that? You hear all the things that God promises that he will do? In verse 4, he says he will make him the father of many nations. In verse 6, he says he'll make them incredibly fruitful and nations and kings will come from him. In verse 7, he says he will extend the covenant to his, his offspring to follow him. In verse 8, he says that he will give them the land of Canaan, that he will be their God. You see, all of this God promises to do for Abram. And it will have to be God who does it because Abram couldn't do that even if he wanted to. I mean, Abram can't even have a son or a daughter or a child by his own wife, much less fulfill all these promises. You see, everything that God promises, it'll only be because of his grace. It'll only because of God's, uh, be because of God's undeserved kindness through this covenant relationship that any of it will ever happen. And this is the first lesson that we learn about a covenant relationship with God. God is the one who initiates the covenant and he's the one who guarantees the promises of the covenant. Uh, you know, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Pastor James uh, talked about uh, Genesis chapter 15. You remember there that God came to Abraham. He said, take these animals and cut them in half, literally, and, and put them on two sides so that there is a walkway in between them. And you remember that then he put Abram into a deep sleep. And then in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, God himself passed between these two halves of the animals. What God was doing there was laying down the legal side of the covenant. He was in essence saying, I swear that I will keep my promises to you. And if I don't, may my blood be shed like these dead animals. But notice that it was only God who walked between those those dead animals. He didn't require Abraham to do it. Because it was God who was going to keep the promise. And he was the one who would guarantee it by his own life. And now, when we come to chapter 17, as an ongoing reminder to Abram, that God will in fact do as he promises, he's going to change Abram's name. God comes to Abram and says, your name is no longer going to be Abram, which means exalted father. He said, now your name is going to be Abraham, which means father of multitudes. In other words, from now on, everywhere you go, I want you to be reminded that I will keep my promises. When he gets up in the morning, his wife comes in and says, good morning, father of multitudes. And when he goes to the market, someone says, to him, hey, how you doing, father of multitudes? And everywhere he goes, he's reminded, this is God's covenant promise to me. And throughout history, we see that that's in fact what God did. He fulfilled every covenant promise that he made to Abraham. He became the father of many nations. His offspring became exceedingly fruitful. Kings did come from him. God did give the land of Canaan to his offspring. And God was their God. God always, always, always fulfills his covenant promises. Because that's who God is. That's his character. And for generation after generation after generation, God walked in a covenant relationship with his people. But after many, many generations, the people of Israel slowly stopped participating in that covenant. They began to take God for granted. They assumed upon his kindness. And they actually began to worship other gods who weren't even gods. And it broke God's heart. 
If you read the Old Testament prophets who God spent, sent to speak to his people, you hear the, how, how deeply God is hurt. I mean, he enters this covenant relationship with his people. And now, and now he, he's upset. He's angry. He, he begs Israel to come back to him. He warns them. He disciplines them by sending them into, into exile. And yet, they simply won't respond. And so finally... In God's grace, rather than abandoning them, he says, you know what? I'm going to establish a new covenant. Listen to the words that he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God says, you know, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And this one is going to be an internal covenant. I'm going to write it on people's hearts. And this is the covenant that God invites you and I to participate in through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And you remember, Jesus talks about it the night before his death. Remember, he's in the upper room with his disciples and he picks up a glass of wine. They're about to share together. And you know what he says, right? He says, this wine represents the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. Because you see, in the new covenant, God also was going to ensure, promise, swear that he would do what he promised by the shedding of his blood. And in this case, the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And just as he made promises to Abram in the old covenant, in the original covenant, in the new covenant, he also makes promises to us. He promises, he swears that the blood of Jesus Christ will pay for your sins and make you right with God if you enter into that covenant with him. And not only that, he, he promises that he will send the Holy Spirit to live in your heart and in your life so that you know and are able to live the way that you should before God. And he promises a land that you will inherit. A new heaven and a new earth and eternity together with God. And he promises you abundant life if you abide in Christ. If you walk before God and are blameless before him. Wholly committed to him. And notice again that each of these promises are are promises that we could never accomplish on our own. In your own strength, you will never be good enough to be right before God. In your own strength, you know how difficult it is to live to honor God. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. And for generations, people have tried to produce paradise here on earth. And it's always been an unmitigated disaster. And you know, As hard as you try, you will never find abundant life, full, deep, rich, satisfying life here on earth apart from God. But that's what he promises to us because of grace. It's all grace. It's all his undeserved kindness to us. And notice again, the new covenant is one that he initiates. It's one that he makes the promises and it's the one that he guarantees that they will happen. It's the first thing you need to know about being in a covenant relationship with God. But then there's another important aspect. After seeking out Abram and and establishing a a covenant with him, making promises with him, then now God wants Abraham to do something as well. Look at verses 9 to 14. 
And God said to Abram, as for you. So now, Abram, here's your part. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God comes to Abraham. He makes all these promises to him. And he says, but now Abraham, there's something I want you to do. I want you and all the men in your household and your family, I want you to be circumcised. Now, why does God require this from Abraham and his offspring? I mean, does Abraham getting circumcised do anything to ensure that all these promises that God has given Abraham will actually happen? Does Abraham getting circumcised somehow guarantee that now he'll be able to have a child with his wife, Sarah? Does it guarantee that that child will somehow become a great nation? Or that, that somehow that nation will inhabit the land of Canaan? No, of course not. So then why does God require Abraham and his offspring to, to be circumcised? And the answer is that it is a sign to God and a very real and daily reminder to themselves that they're going to actively participate in the covenant relationship with God. It's a very clear and really irrevocable way of saying, I am committed to this. I am going to be in a covenant relationship with God himself. And really, this is not a very foreign idea to us, is it? I mean, when we enter into a covenant relationship of marriage, at least in a Western context, we have a sign of that covenant, don't we? What's the sign? It's a wedding ring, isn't it? A wedding ring is a, is a visible and a daily reminder that we're in a covenant relationship with our husband or our wife. Now, is the ring the covenant? No, of course not. It's only a sign of the covenant that we make in our hearts. We still have to live out our covenant daily with our spouse. But our ring is a very real reminder, both to us and to everyone else around us, that we're in a covenant relationship with someone else. And that's what circumcision was for Abraham and for his offspring. Now, there's a problem that developed out of that. And that problem was that over the generations, people began to think that, that all they needed to do was to be circumcised. And that after that, it didn't matter how they lived their life because they were good with God. And that's why already by the time of Moses, he commands the Israelites this. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, he writes, circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. You see, outward circumcision is only a sign of what was supposed to be happening in their hearts. But unfortunately, people began to confuse the sign with the covenant itself. And in fact, it became so entrenched in the people's thinking that by the time of the early church, there were those who said that if a man came to faith in Jesus and wanted to enter into a covenant relationship with God, that he had to be circumcised. This became a huge controversy in the early church. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to help clarify the situation. He said, no, no, no. You don't understand. Abraham was right with God 
Because he believed God. Because he put his faith in God. It was only after he was made right with God through faith that God asked him to be circumcised. In fact, that's what he writes. Romans 4.11. Apostle Paul says, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. You understand what Paul's saying here, right? He's saying Abraham was right with God by faith alone. Not because of any works that he did. Not because he was circumcised. You see, there's nothing magical about circumcision. It was just a sign of what God had already done in his heart. That's why later on, uh, the Apostle Paul could write in the book of Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What really matters is what's going on in your heart. But, but that raises an interesting question. And if God knows our heart, I mean, if he really sees what's going on in our heart, then why the insistence on some kind of a public sign? And the answer is because it is a way to acknowledge our love and our commitment to God. It is a specific, very, uh, a specific moment in time when we very clearly indicate to others, to ourselves, and above all, to God, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you. It is an essential part of being in a covenant relationship. And this is the second thing that you need to know about covenants. Here's the point. We indicate our willingness to participate in the covenant through a sign. It's how it works. Now, fortunately for us today, when we enter into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we don't have to be circumcised. But if a wedding ring is the sign of a covenant between a man and a wife in marriage, if circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and the offspring of Abraham, then what is the sign of the new covenant? Well, the answer is baptism. Baptism is the sign that we are going to actively and fully participate in an ongoing covenant with none other than God himself. Now, just like circumcision, there's nothing magical about baptism. You aren't saved by being baptized. You're saved by faith alone. But, but just like circumcision was a sign of Abraham's faith in God, baptism is a sign of your faith in God. It's a sign that you're in, that, that, that you're deeply committed to being in a lifelong covenant relationship with him. By being baptized, you're publicly saying to the church and to your family and to your friends and above all to God, I am pleased to be in a covenant relationship with you. And a public sign is important. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that you find the girl of your dreams and, and, and you plan the perfect engagement. You, you take her out, and at that moment, you get down on one knee, and you look up at that beautiful woman, and you say, will you marry me? And she says, oh, oh, yes, I would love to. Absolutely. Yes, 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 a thousand times. And then she says, but. But can we not tell our friends? <laughs> or our family? And let's not exchange rings so I don't have to wear a wedding ring. And let's not have a wedding ceremony. I mean, what does that communicate to the one who just invited her into a lifelong covenant? It sounds like she's kind of hedging. Like she wants to quietly get in in case she decides that she wants to quietly get out. 
You see, a public sign is absolutely vital and necessary to be in a covenant relationship. What's more, just as circumcision was a sign that you would become part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, baptism is a sign that you become part of the covenant people of God in the New Covenant. So for instance, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 writes this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, through the act of baptism, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek, if you're a slave or you're free, you're saying, through this act of baptism, I become a part of the people of God. I enter into the people of God through this, this public act of baptism. That's why here at Willingdon Church, we connect baptism with church membership. When you're baptized here, you not only publicly express your faith in Jesus Christ, but you also publicly are saying, I'm part of you. I'm part of the body of Christ, and I'm going to participate fully. And when should this happen? When should a person be baptized? Well, God commanded that every male from Abraham's house should be circumcised eight days after he was born. Now, you have to understand that in that covenant... That a Jewish male entered into a covenant with God through their physical birth. And after waiting long enough to make sure that that child was healthy, that that child would survive about eight days, that child was circumcised and became part of the people of God. And the same principle applies today. Only we don't enter the new covenant by physical birth. You can't be born a Christian. We enter the covenant, the new covenant with God through spiritual birth. Through being born again. So that means that not long after you put your faith in Jesus, you should be baptized. And this is why we strongly encourage those who have recently come to faith to take Discovering the Church Family course. This is a six-week course with five or six other people in a small group where you look at what the Bible says about being part of the covenant people of God. And where you understand what baptism is all about. And then after you complete that, then you should be baptized. It shouldn't be long. And that's because it is the sign that God himself has asked us to give him as an indication that indeed we are going to participate actively in this covenant relationship that he has invited us into. And by God's goodness and by his design, this is a sign that is for both men and women. God asked Abraham for a sign. That he is going to participate in the covenant relationship. And he asks us also for a sign. But then after asking for a sign, look at what what happens next. Verses 15 to 21. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. 
but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So now God says to Abraham, I'm also going to change your wife's name. I'm going to change it from Sarai to Sarah. Now, both of those names mean princess. So it seems that God had changed the pronunciation of her name as a sign that she also is part of the covenant that he's making with Abraham. But he doesn't change the meaning of her name because royalty will come from her. And then having changed her name, God now explains to Abraham how he will fulfill his covenant. How he will fulfill his promises. He's going to do it to Abraham's 90-year-old wife. And Abraham laughs. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's simply impossible. Clearly, the natural choice would be to do it through his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. But that isn't God's plan. God's, God's going to fulfill his covenant promises through the son that he chooses. And that son will only come by way of a miracle. So that no one can claim that they were responsible for this. That they made it happen in their own plans and their own strength. So God says to Abraham, no. It isn't going to be through Ishmael. I'll bless him. But, but the, the son of the promise is going to come through Sarah. And when that boy is born, you give him the name Isaac. Now Isaac means he laughs. And no doubt God gave, uh, instructed Abraham to name him that as a reminder that, you know, Abraham, when I told you I was going to do this, you know your response? You laughed. But more than that, more than that, he gave him this name because you know what? When that boy is born, it's going to be laughter in that household. There's going to be joy for these elderly people who suddenly have the son of the promise. Because you see, God's way of fulfilling his promises is always better, always greater, always more beautiful than we could possibly imagine because he does it in his way and according to his plan. And this is the third thing you need to understand about a covenant with God. God fulfills the covenant promises according to his plan, not ours. And here again, this is true for the new covenant. We sometimes think that we can be right with God through our own efforts, through trying to be good enough, through our human plans. But God's plan is to make us right with him through the son of the promise, through Jesus Christ and his work in us. And you know if you try to please God in your own strength, how incredibly difficult and frustrating that can be. But if you allow Jesus to work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, then slowly but surely he begins to change you to be more like him. And then one day something happens. Somebody says something, something terrible happens in your life. And, and, and instead of responding how you normally do, instead of lashing out or, or becoming angry or, or worrying, instead there's this kind of, kind of peace in your heart. You're not happy about it, but there's a confidence that God's at work. And you know when that happens suddenly? Maybe you don't laugh, but there's just this smile that tugs at the side of your mouth like, oh, oh, he's doing it. He's changing me. He's fulfilling his covenant promises to me through Jesus and the Holy Spirit of work in my life. You see, God always fulfills his covenant promises according to his plans and not ours. And praise God for that. But then there's one more aspect of a covenant that is vital to understand. And let's see it here in the last verses, 22 to 27. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. God comes to Abraham and says, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. And Abraham's immediate response is obedience. He just goes and does it. And if we want to walk in a covenant relationship with God, we should do the same. And here's the last point in your outline. We fulfill our responsibility by acting in obedience. Now, what does that look like for us? Well, for some of you, that means that you need to get baptized. Not not because you aren't saved. Not because you don't have a deep and genuine relationship with God. Not because you aren't serving him. That's not why. No, you, you should be baptized because that's what he asks of you as a sign that you are fully and deeply committed to the covenant relationship that you are in with him. And because baptism is a sign of your entrance into the people of God. Now, I know that there are a number of reasons why people don't want to be baptized. Oh, one of the reasons people don't want to be baptized is they're scared to stand in front of so many people. And that's a legitimate concern. But I have to tell you, I stand up here regularly and you're pretty nice people. And, and, and not only that, but if you've seen a baptism here, you know that when the person is baptized, everybody cheers for them. We're so excited for it. But if that's, a, if that's a very real fear for you, you know, we have some connection services that are much smaller and much more intimate, and we can arrange for you to be baptized there. Now, for others of you, you didn't get baptized because you just never got around to it. You came to faith in Jesus, you got involved in the church, you became serving, and you've just never stop to be baptized. But for you, the problem is that now, now if I get baptized, what will people think? They'll say, what? They haven't been baptized? You know what I have to say to you? Who cares what people think? Right? What you need to think about is what does God think? And will it please him if you're baptized? Does he ask you to be baptized as a sign that you're in that covenant? And don't worry about what everyone thinks. Swallow your pride and just go and do it. But then I know that there are others here for whom baptism is even greater things at stake because it's all about what your family thinks. You know, I spoke once with a woman who told me, my family doesn't mind that I come to church every weekend. They don't mind that I call myself a Christian, but they have told me if you ever get baptized, we will have nothing to do with you. And you know, that family, which wasn't a Christian family, actually understood baptism much better than many Christians do. Because they understood that if she got baptized, she was publicly committing herself to a lifelong relationship with none other than God himself, with Jesus Christ. If she got baptized, this wasn't a phase that she was going through. This wasn't something cool and trendy thing she was trying on. This was going to be who she was going to be. And they warned her, if you choose to do that, there will be severe consequences for you. And you know, she told me that just days before she came here and was baptized here. Because she wanted God to know that she was so deeply committed to that covenant relationship with him that she would be baptized, even though it cost her a great deal because of what Jesus had done for her on the cross. There is a cost to being baptized. 
For some of us, it's greater than others. But God calls you. If you want to enter in that covenant relationship with him, to pay that price. If that's a concern for you, you should make an appointment to see a pastor and to, and to, to, to talk about that some more. But in the end, the answer is you should be obedient to God. But baptism isn't the end, is it? It's just a sign. And there are those who misunderstand baptism like the Israelite people misunderstood circumcision. They figure that, that, that since they've been baptized... That they're good. They're in a covenant relationship with God. Their future is good. And they sometimes call themselves a Christian even though they don't even remotely live like a Christian. And you know how God views those? God views that kind of an attitude the same way we would view someone who gets married and puts on a wedding ring and then sleeps around. God calls on those who enter into a covenant relationship with him to walk before him and to be blameless. To orient their life to a relationship with him and be holy and fully devoted to him. That doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We don't struggle from time to time. But it means we put Christ first. It means that we submit to his leading and his guidance. And it means that we live all in. We trust him in everything. Your covenant relationship is so beautiful. Love, security. It's the best kind of a relationship you could possibly enter into. And God himself invites us. So let's live in the, in the light of that. Let's live in the joy of that. And let's continue to live fully and wholly devoted to God in the covenant that he invites us into. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's pray. God, how amazing that you, that you want to be in a covenant relationship with us. That you would bind yourself to us in love for our benefit. And then that you would promise all these things and you would fulfill them. God, it's, it's unbelievable. And yet it's your grace and your goodness. Father, thank you. Thank you for being that kind of a God. And Father, I pray today for those here who haven't been baptized and who need to be baptized. Father, may they take that step of obedience. May they go and, and sign up for a discovery class and do what's necessary so they tell you, God, I, wanna, I, I want everyone to know I'm in a covenant relationship with you. And Father, for all of us, may we live every day in light of that, that outward sign that we're following you. God, may our lives be wholly and fully devoted to you. God, may you receive all the glory. May it bring great pleasure to you. We thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.